C3, Connecting Coaches Cognition, Coaching with Courtney and Christensen. As a busy coach, you spend all day refueling, revamping, and reflecting with educators. Now is the time to stop and recharge your batteries with some much-needed coaching for the coach. We can no longer ignore the social impact of the events and the incidences that are taking place in our society because there's an impact on our students as well as the educators. Not having these conversations, not addressing these issues, not having a willingness to talk about it is hurting us. I'm personally not an expert in equity, and we don't claim to have the knowledge to even address it properly. That's why we have reached out to two people who have dedicated their research and work to equity. Today, we have John Crown Apple joining us. John specializes in facilitating professional learning and organizational development focused on social justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Since 2007, he has led the development and implementation of one of the first and most comprehensive cultural proficiency programs in the United States. He is the author of the book, Guiding Teams to Excellence with Equity and Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity, which he co-authored with Dr. Floyd Cobb. Good morning, John. Thank you so much for joining us on C3 this morning. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm I'm doing great. I have a cup of coffee and I'm happy to be here. We are lucky to have you join us this morning. We were just discussing how this is our earliest recording and we're hoping we're going to be on our A game with you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Well, as we dive in, can you start by just telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into equity work? Oh, sure. So I've been an educator. Um, My career is about uh, 25 years long now, and I started my career in education as an elementary teacher. So I was teaching elementary school, and I got um, very immersed in the social studies curriculum. Uh, Very early on, I, I started writing curriculum over the summers and then doing teacher trainings. And uh, within a few years, I ended up finding myself as a curriculum specialist um, in terms of social studies and language arts. And it was during that time that I was working as a curriculum specialist where I was serving um, about 70 schools uh, with helping teachers with their implementation and understanding of, of social studies curricula that I was invited to clear my calendar for five days and attend a uh, cultural proficiency training. And at the time, this was the last thing I, I wanted to do because I was getting programs started and really um, what I considered to be a lot of important work to do. So clearing my calendar for a five-day seminar was not something I was happy about. But within the first half of the day that I was there, I, I realized that this was a conversation that had been missing in my professional life and was reconnecting me with um, really what I wanted to do with my life before teaching. Um, high school, college. And so that started uh, my relationship with two mentors of mine, um, Drs. Brenda and Franklin Campbell-Jones. And Brenda had just um, completed her doctorate and um, her focus was on white men that do anti-racism work. So she started talking to me about that work. And it was through my relationship with them that I started forming a new identity uh, for how I saw myself with the work. And this was about 2004, 2005. So really, they were important people in terms of my journey. And then from there, about a year later, um, I was doing that work full time. And what I mean by that work is equity focused professional learning. And uh, over time, I worked for a um, district of about 50,000 to 60,000 students uh, as the coordinator for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then um, about 10 years into my uh, career in equity work, I, I wrote a book that was trying to capture what I had learned about facilitating um, people's and groups journey toward a more equitable, inclusive existence. So that book was called Guiding Teams to Excellence with Equity. And um, that was published in 2016. And right around that time, I reconnected with a friend of mine that I met at the National Staff Development Council conference in 2009. Floyd Cobb, and he lives out near you all in in Denver, actually in Aurora. 
And we started talking about, you know, how our careers were going and how our work was trying to help schools become more equitable were going. And uh, we shared some frustration that there was a, this lack of progress. Uh, it seemed very cyclical. And um, from there, that started the conversation that turned into our recent book, which is Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity. I love that, um, you know, you found this path through professional development opportunity. I know so many educators have had that experience where professional development has literally changed the trajectory of their career. I really appreciate the word dignity and the title of your book, Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity, the Keys to Successful Equity Implementation. Can you tell us a little more about how you arrived at this title? Sure. There's there's two parts, I think. One is uh, has to do with my relationship with Floyd. And then the second part has to do with the word belonging. So I'll start with Floyd. So when we started talking about the ideas that ended up turning into this book, it was, uh, I believe, 2016, 2017. And he had just finished writing his first book, which was called Leading While Black. And, and it was um, very much a reflective piece on his lived experience uh, as an equity or as an educational leader and someone who identifies as black and African-American. And uh, at the time, he was really trying to process some of the 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 hurtful, harmful, negative things that he had experienced as a target of racism and trying to put language to that, as he's explained it to me. Um, he he was trying to describe what it felt like to to be that target. And he he landed on the word humiliation, that um, being the target of racism felt like humiliation. And so he was looking for what the the opposite of that was. What what's the antonym? What's what's the inverse of that? And. That's when uh, he was digging into dignity and humiliation studies while he was near the end of writing his first book and um, was really fascinated by this concept uh, called dignity. And from there, um, he was introduced to Professor Donna Hicks out of Harvard University, who really is the worldwide authority on the topic of dignity. And her work is amazing. Uh, it's really groundbreaking. And what she uh, provides all of us is an opportunity to look at that word dignity a little differently and almost turn it into a verb. So how do we um, so so a question that might represent what I'm talking about is how do I lead with dignity? How do I coach with dignity? How do I teach with dignity? Because when we think about it like that, we have to think about the action, you know, what, what actions represent coaching with dignity or leading with dignity? Um, what does that look like when it's operationalized? And for, for us, as people that are helping others transform their practices, their policies, their behaviors uh, into more equitable, inclusive actions, that concept of dignity became very helpful with the whole idea, the big idea of operationalizing equity. Um, so, the concept of dignity was front and center in our work um, as the action, which which is very, very different from, you know, what has been done before this. Um, so along the line, when we're when we were in the process of writing, uh, we had several working titles. And the one that we stuck with the longest was called Included Through a Culture of Dignity, because we were focused on that concept of inclusion and defining it in a way that represented exactly what we were thinking, which was more than just access, more than just letting someone in. It's, it's an inclusive environment of someone where people are co-creating their culture together. And so we were focused on that. We were thinking about included through a culture of dignity. And along the line, we realized the magnitude of belonging. And that actually ended up becoming even more centered in our work than, than dignity, or at least to the same degree, because we realized that belonging really represented the indicators of equity that we're looking for. Really, when you look at like the cries for justice right now with with the national racial reckoning going on at the heart of it is, you know, the right to belong here. Uh, whenever, you know, we're dealing with inequities and um, exclusion, 
the almost the subtext of it is I deserve to belong here too. And so that is always there as well as the concept of dignity is always there. Meaning dignity, meaning um, the intrinsic value and worth that we all have as humans. So if people are born with dignity, then they deserve to be treated as such as valuable and worthy. And it's through the process of, of, of not only being treated as being valuable and worthy, but treating yourself as valuable and worthy that, you know, um, belonging emerges. So once we realize the magnitude of, of the concept of belonging, that it really, what we're talking about is full membership. Um, the, the title just, you know, wrote itself. It was really easy belonging through a culture of dignity. And it's a very straightforward idea where belonging represents climate or how people feel. And then uh, dignity represents the type of culture, you know, the actions that you would see that are normalized, the values that are normalized, and they all revolve around dignity. It's beautiful how you speak to giving yourself dignity. I think in this time, so many people are struggling with that. And then how when we do look outward of looking at that action of, of, am I coaching with dignity? Am I teaching with dignity? What a beautiful lens for us to be able to look at our work through each and every day and carry with us. Um, I could see people putting that at the top of their plan book or putting it at the top of your coaching mm-hmm. notes so that you remember to be mindful of that. Um, as we drill in more here, John, in your, in your chapter around inclusion, you spoke of inclusion is the engagement with a community where the equal worth and inherent dignity of each person is honored, as you were just touching on. And you went on to explain that despite the inequitable outcomes that are happening, um, you still have hope for public education and that you truly believe that we can break the cycle. Can you please share a bit more with us and tell us what your number one or your first shift you would like to see in public education? Sure. Um, so that concept of inclusion that you were just reading is, is um, the definition that we landed on. And what we realized through the research is that there's no commonly shared definition of inclusion. It differs and is all over the place, depending on, you know, even what type of industry you're looking at, whether we're looking at education, whether we're looking at pre-K-12 education to within which inclusion has very much been entangled with um, special education services since the 1960s. But what's interesting when you look worldwide what we might refer to as you know, culturally responsive pedagogy um, is referred to as inclusive education around the world, which is, um, I think, a, a more straightforward, uh, easier to understand idea. Um, it's a, an education where everyone is, is included you know, as, as full members. And so our definition that we landed on had to represent the idea of co-creation, of shared power, um, as well as uh, the belonging piece. Um, and and we, what we were trying to do is uh, mesh those ideas together. So I think the second part of what you were asking with, you know, that we still have hope, um, I think it's very easy when you're in a critical conversation to, uh, one, either start blaming teachers or implying that you're, you might be blaming teachers or on the other side for the critique to be received, um, as, as blame or even shame. So, you know, we just wanted to make clear on our end that what we're talking about here is a tradition that we need to interrupt. And, you know, we believe that we are very powerful as educators and with the understanding of, you know, what we're dealing with, which is a, tr- a tradition that was never centered on dignity, you know, in terms of public education, it was very much centered around achievement. Uh, and if you achieve, you know, you receive value and worth. And that feeds into a concept that Dr. Donna Hicks refers to as false dignity, where your value and worth is um, contingent uh, and very much uh, based on how you perceive other people. So, you know, I perceive myself as doing pretty well here because at least I'm not down there with them or, you know, I'm I'm not where I want to be because I want to be up there with whoever's at the top of the class ranking or, you know, I want to be in that class that I perceive up there. So I don't feel good about myself yet. However, when I get in there, I will. So, you know, what we're 
dealing with here is kind of the inverse of um, some basic human needs, which are the need to belong, which always precedes the need to achieve. And schooling as, as we know it, very much so, has, has inverted those two. Um, so what we believe is if we realize and, and basically open our collective eyes to this perversion almost of these basic needs, that we can make the corrections that we need um, and start looking at everything from what goes on in interpersonal relationships, to the teacher-student relationships, to the classroom cultures that we shape, um, to the school cultures that we shape, to the district goals and, and mission and priorities and, and, and budget alignment with the idea of honoring human value and worth as the number one priority. So, um, you know, the first thing I think that we need is, is collective awareness um, around, you know, the, what we're dealing with now and how we got there, how we got to this point. Why are there so many inequities that are entangled and nestled within our systems? Um, and with that understanding, then comes uh, a collective understanding of what we need to do. You know, what does dignity look like in action? And then comes, you know, putting it into action, the implementation, which has to be cyclical, like improvement cycles, where we're going through, we're applying what we know about improvement science. We're using data, you know, from, from looking in our very local environment for, for what our specific problems of inequity are. Um, and to do that, we really need to ask the people that we're working with whether that's through surveys, focus groups, um, any type of perception data around the climate, how people feel in the very local environment. And then we can triangulate that against other things, of course, like access data and, and, and performance data. But really, that climate data is just so important in terms of starting points. And from there, we can identify if we can disaggregate that data in as many ways as possible. We can look for patterns uh, in terms of groups and how different groups are experiencing the same environment in, in, in sometimes drastically different ways. So um, I would just say to answer your question, you know, in the shortest way possible, what we're looking for is collective awareness an understanding of what we need to do and then putting that understanding into action uh, with the uh, with the understanding that there is no quick fix here, that it has to be uh, iterative in nature. And over time within that those iterative cycles, what we'll do is uh, create a more equitable and inclusive um, culture. So with the understanding that this is, you know, a long haul process and not a quick fix thing, What's one sustainable thing that an educator could start tomorrow to make strides towards being intentional around equity? Okay, so I'm going to resist the urge to um, go to specific action right here because I always believe that it starts with yourself, with how are you doing? You know, and, and if you think about any relationship, if one person in that relationship doesn't have a firm grasp on their value and worth, then the issues are going to show up in the relationship. You know, it's really like, it sounds trite, but uh, the, the idea that you can't love someone else unless you love yourself um, is, is key. So the, the idea that um, honoring your own dignity is actually at the core of you being able to honor the dignity of other people. And in this time with the, with the pandemic and everything, it's, it's uh, interesting because everyone is, is experiencing some degree of trauma at the same time. And, uh, you know, the indicators are coming out around that with public health, you know, not only uh, people, um, who are, are sick or, or dying of, of COVID, but also some of the, you know, the negative health effects of, of isolation and loneliness. And, you know, there's a whole body of research that just shows how harmful isolation, loneliness, and exclusion are to our health. And it's, it's equivalent. Um, Dr. Murthy, our former surgeon, U.S. Surgeon General, in, in his recent book, he has a, a lot of, you know, these negative health effects. And, and one of which is the you know, equating loneliness and isolation to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. 
in terms of the impact on our mortality. So there's all these kind of hard times, let's just say, that we are going through as adults right now. So the idea of self-care is, is, is critical. Uh, taking care of yourself. Um, so if we want to get down to specific actions, you know, I might say, how much water are you drinking every day? Are you going for a walk? Um, you know, where are you finding your joy? And uh, I've seen uh, there's a a school in, in Houston, uh, it's the name's escaping me, but I've, I've seen online, they have some self-care bingo with the adults, um, with the teachers, where they're checking off different things that they can do to, to care for and love themselves, uh, you know, since the school year has, has started. So that's the first thing. And, and that might not satisfy, I know, people's needs for what can I do with my students, you know, tomorrow. Um, but I want to I want to get there now and just touch on that because um, I want to keep it also in the context that we're living in right now, which is the global pandemic and many people working remotely and, and virtually. Um, and even those not working virtually, many people are entering into this hybrid type of environment where um, students are showing up physically, you know, half of the week or that type of thing. Um, so as my co-author Floyd has said that what we're dealing with now, really um, the biggest need that we're dealing with now when it comes to belonging is the idea of connectedness. Um, and connectedness is the opposite of isolation. So what we can do with our students uh, immediately is, first of all, reflect on um, are they experiencing connectedness with each other, with you as an educator? with the whole process of, of education and schooling that we have going on. And I, I would ask, how do you, how do you know, how can you test that out? How are you asking them? Um, are you surveying them? Um, are you talking with some of them one-on-one? Um, and uh, if we looked at the literature around connectedness, um, what shows up is that it's marked by validation and acceptance so those are two guideposts for us that if people are feeling validated and if they're feeling accepted, then um, that's a pretty good indicator that they're feeling connected. So um, one simple thing we can do online or if you're virtually is is give students choice. Uh, when we're giving students choice, we're elevating their voice on the process, uh, which helps people feel validated. Um, here's an example just yesterday. So I have a 16 year old junior. I also have a three-month-old, so I have, you know, this spectrum of human needs here um, that, that provides a nice lab for me. Uh, so my 16-year-old is working completely virtually uh, in her school district right now through the end of January. And then, the, you know, they're going to make a decision in November of, of what happens after that. So I asked her uh, a couple weeks ago. How's school going? How's the start of school? Are there any subjects you like better than others? And she mentioned psychology. And I said, okay, well, what do you like about it? And she said, I really like the teacher. Awesome. What is the teacher doing that makes, you know, you like this teacher so much? Well, she's really interesting and engages us. And and I just like the way that she engages us in the work. Well, so this was yesterday. I opened my inbox and I, I get the updates through Canvas from all the teachers who send messages to, to the students. So I get to see those and everything. So I saw that at the end of last week, she sent out uh, a message to the students in her class and said, because we're on a semester schedule right now in a full year, we are not going to cover all the units that we would if we were face to face. So what I want to do is cover the units that you all are most interested in. And then she had a link to the survey. What I'm going to do is see which units you all are most interested in, and we're going to put the other ones on the back burner. And so I just thought that was brilliant. You know, she put, she put, she shared her decision-making power with students right there in the virtual environment. Um, obviously, this isn't the only thing she's doing because, as my daughter said, she just really likes the way she engages them. So this gave me a little um, uh, sneak peek into what's going on there and how that fits in terms of honoring dignity is that when people feel seen, heard, welcomed, and treated fairly, they feel like they belong. So... I see that example as an example 
of helping students feel um, seen and heard. So it's it's those type of things, I think, that are simple that we could start out with um, in terms of actions with students, uh, giving them choice, helping them feel validated and listening uh, to them as best as best we can. Absolutely. And just, just that introspective part of starting with us and honoring each person's journey in this learning through equity and being able to take those small steps within the classroom of whether it's the relationship or voice or choice in order to make those students who really are feeling so disconnected in this time feel like they have a little bit of power and a little bit of investment in what we're doing in order to honor them and make them feel that connectedness. That's so huge. That's that's a beautiful example. I hope your daughter just really enjoys that class all year. <laughs> I'm I'm going I'm definitely going to be keeping track here because it's almost like a lab where I'm 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 kind of testing out what's going on there against the dignity framework because it seems like that's what's making um, the engagement happen. It's awesome to be able to see it from the educational stance and also from the parental stance and be able to glean information from both. Exactly. I know you touched on the self-care piece with what uh, teachers could implement immediately with loving themselves, but we know that empathy fatigue is a risk for dignity conscious people. What are some ways people can engage in self-empathy to combat this? Yeah, absolutely. I I think the empathy fatigue or the, the fur, further than that, the compassion fatigue is a real risk for us as educators right now over the past six months, as well as moving forward. Um, and for those who are listening that may not be familiar with, with that concept, it's, it's basically the idea that those of us who are caring for other people um, all the time eventually burn out to the point where it's really hard to empathize because you get numb. It's really hard to feel compassion because because you get numb. So um, the idea of practicing self-empathy and self-compassion becomes important because you realize when you are when you need to be uh, refueled, you know, when you need to sharpen the saw, when you need to even just take a break. Um, it reminds me of uh, back. I mentioned my mentors. Um, Brenda and Franklin Campbell Jones, years ago, they were telling me about just how much of a toll leading equity-focused professional learning takes on you as a facilitator. And early on when I was learning, it, it really, I mean, it hit me hard. At, at night, I would go home, sit down, and fall asleep. I would just be drained because you're, you're, you're absorbing all this energy in the room of folks who are you know, struggling and dealing with emotions. And sometimes that emotion is, is aimed at you as a facilitator in a way that, you know, you have negative energy just being projected onto you. And so what they shared with me back in the day was that, um, some, after a few months, what they do is just check out for a couple of weeks. They don't think about, they, they do something completely different and, what that taught me was the need for boundaries and it's something I'm still working on. Um, but I think that it's applicable to many of us as educators in this environment is the need for, for boundaries, the need to turn off your computer at, you know, four or four thirty, to not think about it, to have, you know, some things that you look forward to outside of work, some interests, um, you know, in, in kind of things like wellness wheels help where you're thinking about nutrition, uh, physical health, entertainment, you know, um, whether it's a, a show that you love on TV, uh, balanced with, you know, a hobby like cooking and then, you know, some type of workout routine that works for you. Um, there's some online tools that I would recommend. You can just Google wellness wheel and look and do some self-assessments for how you are doing right now, how in balance you are. And, um, that, that helps as well. Um, so, oh, I don't want to lose track of you were asking about the whole idea of, of self empathy. It really, um, people who are into mindfulness, kind of have a head start with this because uh, it involves being centered and taking stock of where you are and, and really asking yourself questions such as, you know, how, 
what am I feeling at this moment? And, and noticing it in, in a very objective way. Um, what am I needing right now? Uh, what maybe am I asking myself for right now that is based on my needs? Um, what's awesome uh, about all this is that the dignity framework applies whether you're applying it on an intrapersonal level, an interpersonal level, an institutional level, or a structural level. So we have four dispositions uh, in our you know, framework, listening, empathy, patience, and openness. And at first glance, a lot of people think, okay, listening to other people. And absolutely, absolutely. But you could also turn it within and listening to yourself noticing how you're responding to certain things. And nowadays we have so much technology that, that helps out my, um, a good long friend, uh, Ross, we were together the other day and he was showing me this, uh, bracelet that he has from work. It's not a Fitbit. It's like an evolution of Fitbit, but it tracks so much data for him, how he's sleeping, you know, connected with how much caffeine he had and, um, how much stress his body has been underneath. So he gets a weekly report and that helps the, these technologies can really help you with noticing and listening to yourself and getting more tuned in. So now more than any time in history, I think we have the tools and the ideas to help us uh, pay attention to ourselves and get to the point where we can get better at empathizing with, with ourselves, knowing what we need and then responding to what we need. And the two core questions really, what am I feeling right now and what am I needing? I just want to, I'm so glad we asked that question. I want to shout you from the rooftops. I think educators <laughs> just needed this reminder and you're speaking directly to me. I think your idea of building boundaries of listening to yourself and what you need in this time is just so pivotal. And I think educators are running so quickly that they don't always pause to ask those questions so they have good cognition in order to progress forward. So I, I, I just appreciate you speaking to that. And I think that um, there's a lot of people asking themselves those questions at this moment. So um, as, as we're thinking about being leaders in this change and, and planning for professional development, you kind of touched on this in your career, but what advice would you give to coaches who are planning for equity training or professional development? Uh, okay. So this is where I think it starts with the core ideas. What do we as leaders of, of, of equity focused professional learning as coaches who may be facilitating that, whether that is in a group or one-on-one, or -on -one, really our job as coaches is to facilitate or guide people's learning and growth. And we do that in a way that should be more of a partnership um, or, or more reciprocal, or in other words, in a way that honors the dignity of the other person and ourselves as having equal value and worth, no matter how long our tenure has been in education. So planning um, starts with understanding what, what dignity and belonging is all about. Uh, I think for us as coaches, um, the, the whole framework has incredible possibilities because coaching is such a lever for improvement and, uh, starting with shared language, shared language and understanding. What do we mean by dignity? What are the indicators uh, of belonging and what are the standards? We, you know, we have four standards for dignity. And if we normalize that language within our relationship with those that we're, we're serving, we can more easily identify um, the indignities that we may experience, not only within the classroom, but within our coaching relationship. And then we can talk about it in a way that um, can externalize it. And we can actually talk about it as something that we can correct within our relationship and create some new dynamic that is more aligned with dignity. Um, so I think planning is, is starting with that understanding of, of belonging and dignity because um, all too often, I've experienced equity focused professional learning that does not honor dignity where people feel blamed. People feel shamed. People feel dominated. Uh, people feel like they're presumed incompetent, which I think we have to be, a, we have to be wary of that in any, in any professional learning opportunities that we're providing because 
especially when it's mandated that that people tend to feel like um, uh, they tend to recoil because there's this assumption that's kind of floating, floating out there that they're not good enough or that they don't have this knowledge and expertise and some expert is going to give it to them. And to that, they, they recoil because they feel um, denigrated um, or, or, or presumed as if they are incompetent. So, you know, that language for us that are leading, you know, these type of opportunities comes in very helpful because we can use those um, violations of dignity, that language as red flags to plan to make sure that we are, you know, approaching every opportunity that we provide um, with dignity front and center. So we're presuming competence of folks. We're building partnerships with them. And if you're familiar with Jim Knight's partnership principles, um, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about building partnerships, which is one of the four standards of dignity. Then repairing harm and restoring relationship. And um, what I have found anecdotally through the years and now through my observations every day is that it seems very hard for us as humans to um, take accountability uh, when we mess up to say we're sorry. And it seems that within hierarchical relationships, it seems even that uh, much harder for folks who are at the top of the hierarchy just to say, you know what, I, I don't know what I'm doing here, or I messed up and I really want to make things right. I want to make reparations for what has been going on for, for a long time with the idea that, you know, repairing things uh, improves the, the whole community. It creates a healthier community. Um, so, you know, having that as coaches within our repertoire of how to repair harm when we mess up and, and we will mess up. That's just a dynamic in any relationship. We are going to offend some people. We're going to create some conflict where people are going to have, you know, some um, ideas about us that aren't the most positive that they do not share with us. So how, how are we how are we going to seek that out and be proactive uh, to restore any relationship that we've been building hard, uh, working hard to build and repair any harm that may have been done inadvertently. And then also the fourth one I would say is to, to pay attention to affirming uh, the uniqueness and the differences that everyone has. And of course, that's, you know, all of the different perspectives we're bringing to the table and experiences and various identities that we may have and making sure all of that is seen as value added within the professional learning environment. And also um, it's, it's also acknowledging what people do, the thoughtfulness that they show, the hard work that they display. And that's, it seems like a, a lost art, like handwritten thank you notes are something of, of the past. But what I've been trying to do is like reprogram myself recently. I have a stack of thank you notes on my desk right now that I haven't gotten around to. Uh, matter of fact, I might go do this after we're done with, with this interview. It's a, it makes a difference. People feel recognized and acknowledged, with, which helps them with one of the indicators of belonging, which is feeling appreciated, um, feeling seen. So one thing I would do um, is buy a stack of thank you notes and get in the habit of maybe not every single time we're meeting with someone, but periodically writing them a thank you note with specific feedback about that's appreciative in nature, not coaching feedback and not evaluative feedback, but appreciative feedback and, and writing them a good old fashioned thank you note for, for, you know, being a part of the relationship with you. Um, so, you know, those are just some of the things that come to mind. I really appreciate your ability. Um, you know, equity is such a big, overwhelming term, and you've really made it tangible. And I think our listeners are going to have things that they can put into place and feel attainable to start now. And I think, you know, that's our goal at the end of the day is to start the conversation of equity and lessen the fear around it. Um, but I think really all this introspective work is going to be really valuable um, to our listeners. I appreciate that. We're going to move into our rapid fire questions. Um, you have 30 seconds or less. What would be your tagline or bumper sticker for equity work? Oh, uh, be the change. Be the change you wish to see in the world. 
What is your go-to move in starting a conversation around equity with educators? Oh, uh, how how are how are you feeling? How are how are your students feeling? You know, in 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 this environment, how are the parents feeling? Like having that framework in mind with the indicators of belonging, which is how how people feel in 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 your environment. I would always start out there with how are people experiencing this? And then how do you know? So th that just kind of opens up thinking about and, and, and also opens the window to empathize, empathizing with folks. Timeless and true, John. We so appreciate all of your sentiments and just joining us and really, like Courtney said, making it tangible. And I will tell you, your handwritten thank you is sitting on my desk right now. We were kind of giggling as you were talking about that because that's something that um, I've always advocated for. And I feel like I'm a little dorky going old school writing those, but we love being able to send that out to you as well. So no, it's coming your way soon. And we hope we can continue to connect with you in the future. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I really, I really do appreciate it. It's going to make me feel appreciated. <laughs> well, we will make sure to get that out to you. And we just really hope that the rest of your year and your daughter's year goes fabulously and that we can continue to spread your message. So thank you for sharing with us. Thank you so much. And thank you for this work that you're doing in, in, in your podcast. It's awesome. Thank you. We appreciate it. We've heard from John about equity and belonging through a culture of dignity. During this time of the pandemic, we'd be remiss if we didn't look at equity through the lens of instructional design. I'd like to welcome Dr. Sarah Thomas to C3. Dr. Sarah Thomas is a regional technology coordinator in Prince George's County, Maryland, and affiliate faculty member at Loyola University. She's also an ISTE co-author of Closing the Gap and founder of EduMatch. Sarah, welcome so much to C3. We are so thrilled to have you here today. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much. I'm super honored to be here. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Things are, are pretty good on this side. How about you all? How are y'all doing? I, I hear that hesitation in your voice. It's the best it can possibly <laughs> be in this moment, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, we are just excited to have you here and be our expert today, and we wanted to know a little bit about your background. If you can tell us a little bit to start about how you got your start in education and what you're currently doing, and just give our listeners a little insight as to your world. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you the short version of a very long story. <laughs> so I didn't originally start out in education. Um, I started out um, as a radio TV film major and graduated um, and got my start because I figured out about maybe halfway through that I really wanted to be in education. My mom started teaching around that time. And, you know, I'd go down to her middle school classroom and help out. And I was just like, oh, I really want to be over there. But, you know, I'd already done all my credit. But um, it was like serendipity. I re-enrolled in grad school. One day I was coming down the hall. I saw a flyer recruiting for teachers for a nearby district, and they were doing an alternative certification process. So I applied. They took me. And um, long story short, 16, later, 16 years later, it didn't take 16 years, but 16 <laughs> years <laughs> from when I saw that flyer, you know, I've, I've, I've been in education. I'm loving it. Um, currently, I'm a regional technology coordinator um, on a team with about 20 or so other people in my district. Um, amazing folks who have inspired me, you know, throughout my 16 years in the district. Um, I started off uh, as an elementary school teacher, moved to middle school, and I started doing technology and um, English language arts. And then I ended up in the classroom um, in high school, where I taught a lot of technology education. Um, and then, you know, I started my role where I am right now about five years ago. And uh, I also adjunct um, in a master's in ed tech program. So that's kind of, it's kind of what I do. You're not busy at all, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right? Adjunct professor running a tech, coordinating tech. That's a lot on your plate. <laughs> Thanks. So I just it's all smoke and mirrors. So, you know, it all feeds into one another. So I'm I'm very, very happy to be able to do what I love. That's awesome. In your work as a regional tech coordinator, how have you addressed concerns over and around equity? 
Yeah, so we are in a very, very large district um, in Maryland. And within our district, and you have a little bit of everything, you have um, suburban, um, largely a suburban, you have urban, and you also have rural. So we span, like, we have 208 schools in our district. Um, And so... You know, through working um, with our team, uh, as well as with other departments within the district, um, we have, I, I want to say that during this uh, this time of remote learning, you know, a lot of moving pieces came together. People worked together extremely well. We had um, some fantastic leadership and guidance. Um, and it's it's really been um a journey to to witness everybody just kind of stepping up and uh and doing what we need to do for the students um so you know the term equity is multifaceted a lot of times we think about devices and bandwidth that was one of the things that um that our ceo and the leadership in our district did um in terms of making sure that you know pretty much taking apart the carts within the school and making sure that each student that needed a device got one um, as well as working with the community um, resources to make sure that students had access to the internet. Um, and I know you asked about me specifically, but I, I'm giving you like the whole district view. Um, <laughs> they also have, um, you know, they have curriculum that they're doing on TV for students who may still not have that uh, that access. Um, but that that's one component of equity that people talk about. Um, but there's so many other dimensions. Um, another thing is um, access to high quality teaching experiences. So we've been working on building capacity um, within everyone in our district. So I know that we had a few different academies going. Like at first, when we uh, when we switched gears because of the pandemic, then there was like this intensive, like training PD time, professional learning period, where we saw all of our uh, staff in the district. And that is a lot of staff. That's about 15,000 people um, that came through our sessions. Um, So we did that at, you know, in March, we did that in June, we did that again in August. So it's, it's definitely been um, intense. And another thing is that the district has also worked on bringing parents more into the student learning process. I know that our district has established parent learning centers. Um, and, you know, a lot of the outreach material has been translated, um, you know, and that that's really helpful, especially now with the remote learning uh, that we're doing because, you know, trying to learn about a new software in a new language, that's that that can be extremely challenging. So I'm so happy that they took that step to do that. I can hear the passion in your voice for the different elements of equity in which you're trying to um, definitely elevate in this moment and trying to make sure that you're meeting everyone's needs. If you were thinking, I know we're in this pandemic world, but if we were thinking in a more utopian educational system, more of our normal and more resources and so on, tell me, what would you put on your syllabus for a course on equity? What would you start with? Oh, wow. Um, I would say that a lot of the work comes from within, uh, from each of us. Um, So, you know, I already kind of alluded to... um, the, the building the high quality educational transformational opportunities for learning. Um, so being capable of doing that, of course, not every lesson has to be like, you know, oh, I'm bringing in all of this tech, but being able to know how and when to use technology for learning to, to maximize learning. And I would also say that a huge component of it would be to dismantle um, whatever oppressive systems that we may carry within us. Um, I know that lately um, in our country, there has been a lot of conversations and I'm, I'm very glad to see that people are more willing to have conversations um, on how to become anti-racist. Um, that's that's one thing that I'm seeing and I'm, I'm really loving those conversations and I really, really, really hope that they stay alive, um, you know, past whatever may be in the headlines, you know. Um, there have been, there have been many killings lately of unarmed black people. Um, and that's been in the news, but headlines tend to fade. I hope that passion never fades that, you know, and we can have these conversations 
just to, to make it a more fair and just world for, for all of our students. That's so powerful that um, out of conversation, so much can happen. And that's, you know, there's a sadness that we're just at that point of having that conversation. But at the same time, there's so much hope in being able to have those conversations and to recognize what's happening. And then how do we perpetuate that beyond just a headline? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, educators are always listening and looking for ways to improve and change. Um, I know you talked about your professional development rollout. What's something that an educator can do to take a step towards building more equitable practices within their classroom? Absolutely. So a lot of this work, once again, comes from comes from the inside and goes out, right? It starts with each of us individually. Um, I would say probably the best thing in my own life that I can reflect back on and say, oh, this absolutely made the biggest difference was being connected, um, becoming a connected educator, you know, um, using social media for my own learning to become a better educator and a better person, I found in general, um, getting to know people, talk to people. Um, so joining professional or personal learning networks, however you want to define PLN, um, and not, not just that, but going beyond the surface, um, because a lot of times, you know, we may have, we may have surface conversations and that's okay. You know, it's good to have conversations to learn about, you know, oh, I want to learn how to do this with my students. Okay. This is how you do this with your students. Okay. Thanks. All right. And then, you know, that's it. Right. And that's fine. There's some, you know, there's definitely, um, that's definitely relevant. I would say in addition to that, um, we need to find deeper connections and intentionally seek people outside of what we may be used to surrounding ourselves in our friendship circle or, you know, the people who live in our general area or people who think like us, who look like us, who, you know, who have the same, um, who have similar experiences, being intentional. Um, I always love to share a story. I have a very, very close friend who lives in the Philippines. We have never met face-to-face. We very likely will not meet face-to-face in this lifetime. But I tell you, um, we are on Voxer. Like, like we celebrate together, you know, not not just the professional, but the personal highlights, Um you know, celebrate birthdays. Like we, we talk about what's life like over there, what's life like over here, you know? Um, and, and this is someone that I would call a good friend of mine, but we have never, we have never been in the same physical space and we probably never will. Um, so, but that's, that's just been a really powerful experience for me to, to kind of expand my worldview beyond, um, what, what I see on a daily basis. So I would say, definitely doing that and and having you know once we have these friendships having conversations um having conversations the ones that we tend to shy away from the ones that tend not to be quote unquote polite right you know there's certain things that are supposed to be discussed and and or not discussed politely um quote unquote again but um being able to have these conversations with our friends you know our friends that we have connected with who are who we have intentionally sought out because they might bring something to our um, perspective that we may not necessarily see ourselves. I love the idea of expanding your personal learning network and being intentional in finding new people who will help you rumble with your own vulnerabilities and be able to expand your own mindset beyond what you currently know. Mm, absolutely. And I love the idea that ti- we're not bound by time or space. I love that this pandemic in, in one bright point in it, it has taught us that even before that, some people didn't see it, but we're seeing it even more now that we're not bound by time and space, that we can really reach out to people globally and be able to build those networks like you're having with your friend in the Philippines to be able to enrich our lives and enrich our perspectives. Yeah, so. totally. And I love that like uh, Facebook is like a great platform for that. Like uh, I heard somewhere that if Facebook were a country, it would be like top five population wise in the world or something <laughs> like that. And and just having like all of those people there and a subset of all of those people, all of those educators. And I'm seeing these global groups, like truly international groups and these mega groups that have like popped up during the pandemic. Like that is such a great place to start because most people are already on Facebook or at least familiar with Facebook. So 
you know, just looking for wherever you already are, be it Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, there is an educator community there, most likely, more more often than not. Absolutely. And the more we can learn from each other, the better we all are at elevating our practices and our understanding of our world, right? It's I, I just love that yes. idea of reaching out to grow within, right? Um, mm. a lo- along that vein mm. of sharing with others and and making sure that we're we're building our PLN. We know that you were one of the keynote speakers at Simply Coaching Summit this past summer. Um, and we know mm-hmm. you were speaking about the digital equity beyond just devices. Can you share some of the key takeaways with our listeners from, from your session there? Yeah, totally. So, um, so it was digital equity beyond the devices. We looked at three key components of equity. And I mean, there, this is not like an exhaustive list, but you know, there was, um, the access to high quality, um, high quality learning opportunities, um, the access to, oh my goodness, High quality teaching, excuse me, I'm messing it all up. <laughs> access to high quality teaching, access to um, transformational learning experiences, and also the elephant in the room was the the devices and the bandwidth. And I would say like the main takeaway is that it takes us all, it takes all stakeholders to really make that difference. You know, we all need to come together, work together. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what role we have, um, if we are classroom teachers, if we're administrators, if we are specialists, if we are parents, community members, you know, students, like everybody plays a role um, in terms of making sure that our students have what they need um, in order to be successful and and even beyond that, to thrive in today's world. Um, So, you know, there was, um, I made mention of a couple of things, like in terms of students really taking that initiative um, and, and changing the world. Um, that was, that's one thing that, you know, I, I love generation Z. I, I feel like I was born maybe like 20 years too early. Right. <laughs> I kind of <laughs> wish I could be like right there with them making this change, but they're so awesome and, and their passion, um, and their fire that they have to make change is just, it's, it's just amazing. Um, I heard someone say once that, we need to get out of our students' way. Um, I know that that's kind of a joke. Um, I I I agree to an extent. I would say not necessarily get out of their way, but let them lead and support them as they need. Right? Support them. Be their biggest cheerleaders. Um, you know, amplify their message, but let them lead. Let them take charge when they have that that spark. Just just let them go. You know, let them do what they do. Yeah. That's so true. I mean, those are the best moments in the classroom when you see that passion and you yeah. just let them run with it. Yeah, totally. It's so interesting. We've had a few conversations around equity and it always comes back to building that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really ties into um, your vision with EduMatch um, and the vision of we use the power of social media in order to help foster collaboration and connections among educators around the globe. We understand that relationship to the foundation for learning and even for us as educators. Can you tell us a little more about um, EduMatch and how people can get involved? Sure, sure. So here's another short version of a long story. (laughs) So basically, it's it's a project that almost didn't happen, but it did happen. Um, So here's here's the short version. I'll try to keep it brief. Um, On on a Friday night, I was sitting on Voxer. I'm bringing it back to that Voxer app. I use it all the time, or at least I used to. Um, and I still do, but I don't drive as much. But anyway, I was chatting with a friend of mine, um, and she was talking about using fantasy sports and math. That was something that um, when I had just gone to Haiti a month earlier, then my cousin who taught math told me that he did with his students, and he gave me a book on it. And I was just like, okay, you know, when I was chatting with her, fast forward to me chatting with her on Voxer, um, and I said, you know what, you need to talk to my cousin, um, and you all could really, you know, brainstorm and come up with something great. We should also loop in our other friend who does a lot of gamification, and, you know, I wonder what you all would create. And that was kind of like that aha moment, like, okay, what would happen if you 
start matching people up intentionally, you know, platonically, of course, like a lot of people thought that it was like match.com or something at first, but it's not. <laughs> that was actually our tagline. Like we are not a dating site, but, um, but yeah, just, just matching folks up. And so that's pretty much what I started doing on Twitter. Um, and from that, you know, there was a spreadsheet that, or I'm sorry, a Google form that people would fill out. And um, as I was kind of tweeting out about them and tagging other folks, then um, people brought their great ideas. And from that, we continued to grow. So soon thereafter, we had a boxer group. Um, soon after that, we had like a guest blog. Soon after that, we had um, an ed camp that we did. Then we had like a podcast and um and it continued to grow and grow and grow. And, um, you know, fast forward to six years later, and now we have, um, now we also have a book publishing div division that has kind of picked up um, a lot since 2018, I would say, is when we really started with that. We have over 50 titles published. Um, in addition, we have a site um that does courses. So we're building out our course arm. And in addition, and I would say that this is one of the things that I'm, I'm very proud of. It's one of our newest things. We just awarded our very first mini grant from our nonprofit arm. So, um, so yeah, so there's a lot more of that to come. So, you know, we're, we have a 501c3 like partner organization um, that, you know, supports the, uh, the projects, the grassroots projects of teachers and of students or I should say of educators and of students. So um, that's that's kind of how, that's kind of what we do, who we are. And um, to join, there's multiple different points of entry. <laughs> yeah. I would say, um, you know, come like on our website, edumatch.org, um, there's a place that says get connected and you can see all the different social media that we're on. There's Facebook groups, Voxer groups, Twitter, you know, all these uh, different groups. Um, there's also... A separate website for the publishing and you know if people have um ideas that they want to pitch and there's an faq page on there um let's see we're currently working on our fifth crowdsource book um no fifth edumatch snapshot in education so our probably our eighth crowdsource book but um but yeah so that's going on now so we're going to drop that at the end of the year and people are continuing to release their stories and their ideas to the world. So uh, I want to say now we might be on number 52-ish. Um, so that's that's kind of who we are, what we do. That is amazing. You know, I know our listeners for sure will be signing up and joining in. It sounds like there's a ton of great resources and connections to be made. Thank you. When I love how you're saying that the first step is to get connected with people and find your people and find your tribe who can help to, to help expand your perspective. And then you're having a tangible way for people to be able to do that a next step and having a system and a, and a protocol. So that's unbelievable that you're, you're making, you're paving the road for them to be able to start this journey. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You know, some people walk the walk, but it sounds like you're definitely talking the talk and walking the walk all the way in all realms. You're a jack of all trades, obviously. Oh, thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. Well, we don't want to steal too much time from you, Sarah, but we want to know where can our both us and our listeners, we know we can go to the website for EduMatch, but where else can we learn from and with you? And I think we heard a lot about the projects coming down the pipe, but is there anything else that you wanted to share? Uh, let's see. So the best ways to connect with us are on Twitter. Um, edu underscore match is our original account. We also have um, edu match, uh, edu match books, which is our publishing account. We have EM Foundation Inc., which is our nonprofit. We have um, edu match pod. No, I'm sorry, edu match PN, which is our podcast network. Um, and you know, we, we have several different, uh, sites, our edumatchfoundation.org, um, is where you can find us, uh, in, in, on the web for our nonprofit. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so many different ways to, to just get connected. So, um, I'm excited to connect with your listeners, um, and to, to welcome them into our PLF <laughs> professional learning family. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I love PLF. Not even PLF. Oh, I'm taking that. I'm going to, I'm just going to like quote Sarah Thomas moving forward. I love it being all in the family. That is amazing. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Thank you. 
Well, now we're going to go down to one of my favorite portions, which is the rapid fire question. So answering in roughly 30 seconds or less, we would love to know what is your tagline or bumper sticker for your equity work? Uh, that would be see your students, yes. see them, see them for who they are and, and like, let them walk in their purpose fully upright. Yeah. Beautifully stated, beautifully stated. And tell me, what is your go-to move in starting a conversation around equity with educators? Ooh, my go-to move uh, would be to get to kind of see where they're coming from, like ask questions, get to know them, and then, um, you know, also see what the what the glows and grows are as they see it and um, and start working with them in that capacity. I love your mind frame of meeting people, meeting students where they are and growing from that point. That's just, it's, it's just very opening and humbling. I love it. Yeah. Well, we were so excited to have you today. Thank you so much for joining us on C3 Connecting Coaches Cognition. And we look forward to collaborating with you in the future and being able to join EduMatch and continue to build our PLF. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really been an honor and a pleasure to speak with both of you and, uh, Definitely look forward to to connecting with you all down the line as well. We are so fortunate to be able to learn from John and Sarah today and engage in the important conversation around equity. I feel like we have several tangible steps that we can put into practice right away. Remember, it's all about the conversation beyond the headline, and we appreciate you joining us for this important conversation. We challenge you to look at your PLF. Who can you start this conversation with today? Thanks for listening. C3, connecting, coaches, cognition. Whose thinking will you mediate today?